0: You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the Gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 2, 23-25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible is chock full of God's wisdom. Packed to the gills chocked full of God's wisdom uh, in, in relation to God's wisdom in creation, God's wisdom in salvation, God's wisdom in everyday living. It is loaded with wisdom. We have an extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable resource right here at our fingertips. It's, it's likely that you own a Bible, if you don't, there's, a, there's one in the pew back you can take home, and now you do. Um, it's likely that you own at least one Bible, uh, and it's also very likely that you have in your pocket at all times a Bible and many different translations to choose from. Now, I don't think you understand what kind of a privilege it is to have this kind of access. Uh, pre-1500s, people would have given an arm and a leg just to have a piece of the Bible, in print, where they could daily open it up, unpack it, look through it, read through it, meditate on the Word of God. And and of course, there has been technology like the printing press that's made it available, of course, translation into the common language that has now uh, been incredibly, now very accessible for us. We have an incredibly privileged place in time right now. And while the Bible and its wisdom are more accessible than ever, it is tragically underutilized. Instead of God's wisdom, our airwaves, our social network spheres, are cluttered with the opinions of man. Whether it be political pundits, whether it be celebrities kind of airing out their latest discovery or or technique to living, or or the cl- cliche spewing so-called social media influencers, which I don't understand because usually they don't have their life together. Our airwaves are cluttered with the opinions of man. Instead of dishing out God's wisdom, they offer a fool's gold equivalent. And perhaps the most widely touted piece of advice that you hear today coming from these places sounds like this. You might even be able to guess it. Ready? You just gotta follow your heart. Follow your heart. Your heart is is the compass of true north. Do what feels right for you. And this is everywhere from Pinterest boards to the Disney movies. We're being told, be yourself, trust your heart. And the passage that we come to today, these three verses, Jesus tells us that is a terrible idea. Following your heart, this, this idea that you can follow your heart and it will go well for you is the greatest myth of all time. In fact, the worst thing that you can do is follow your heart. And we're going to unpack why that is the case. So if you want to jump with me into your Bible, we're in John chapter 2. We're closing out chapter 2 today. Uh, and this is this passage that we have is really meant to be a transitional passage. Um, we, we started out the first, the opening prologue. We're moving into the book of signs, which is, uh, is um, God or Jesus revealing his glory through the demonstration of signs and teachings. There's a lot of interactions. In fact, this these verses right here are, are meant to be transitional in the fact that when Jesus goes to interact with Nicodemus, which we'll see here in chapter three, when Jesus goes to speak to the woman at the well in John chapter five, this is, helps us understand why Jesus says the things that he does. And, and in this transitional faith, uh, this passage, it, it also helps us uh, to, to understand what Jesus is seeing. Now, as we've studied John's gospel, um, I've started out talking about this, that the whole point of the gospel of John is to bear witness to who Jesus is so that people would see him with the eyes of faith and believe in his name and have life everlasting. This is the whole point, that you would see Jesus, that you would know Jesus, you would believe in him and have life. Now, up to this point in John's gospel, and it said we're only two chapters in, up to this point, you could deduce that there are really only two types of people in the world. The first category of people, the first type of person, are those who believe in Jesus. Those who, who see and believe. Those who are for Jesus. Those who are wearing Team Jesus jerseys. Right? Those are the first category. And on the other hand, you have another category of people who, who don't believe in Jesus, And not only do they not believe in Jesus, but they're adversaries of Jesus. They are against Jesus. There's enmity between them and Jesus. Now, if these are the two categories and we were left to identify which category we ourselves are to fall into, um, it would seem relatively clear-cut, I think. I think for most of us, it would be obvious that we're on Team Jesus, right? Um, Maybe you grew up in the church Or you've been baptized, you you read your Bible daily, Um, you've had a a conversion experience of some time. In fact, you're you're here in the room in a church, a Jesus preaching church right now. So you could say the evidence is stacked up in my favor that I am on team Jesus. And as we enter into verse 23, uh, we see people who would probably have said the same exact thing. So would we say, well, I'm here, I, I, I've seen Jesus, I, I believe in Jesus. In fact, it says that there are many people, here, look at verse 23. Uh, now, when Jesus was in, in Jerusalem at the Passover, listen, here they are, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so you have people here who have seen Jesus perform his signs, his miracles, and they believed in his name. And, and we read this and we think, great, this is great. People are seeing, they're believing, turning to Christ. they're, They're going from unbelief to belief. This is a great thing, team. Jesus is growing, Jesus is catching on. This is fantastic. But as you keep reading into verse 24, it tells us that Jesus is actually skeptical of them. That though it says they believed in his name, Jesus doesn't buy it. Look at this, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, what this is literally saying, if you break down the Greek that we see here, it literally says that these people, these many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe them, that there's something about their faith that doesn't Quite compute that doesn't register as true belief. And so Jesus looks at them skeptically. Now, this is confounding to us. This is something that makes us scratch our head um, and wonder what in the world is going on here because our, our, the perception that many people have today is that Jesus is just, there's a really low bar. Uh, to come to Jesus. there's a really, really low bar. All it takes that uh, Jesus takes anybody and everybody who comes and, and all it takes is any kind of degree of belief that would be sufficient to be considered part of Jesus' family. But here in this verse we see this isn't the case. Now we're being introduced to a third category of people. right So on the one hand you've got true believers uh, on the, the other the second category is is those who don't believe, and now you have people who think they believe but actually are really part of that second category is they don't have true faith. These are so-called, you know, put air quotes, believers. They have a kind of belief in Jesus, but it's different than the true belief of the disciples who truly come to Jesus and have faith in him. These are the people who think themselves to be in category one, but are in reality part of category two. They don't have true belief. They are unbelievers. Now, this is something that, I don't, it can feel discombobulating to us and wonder, is this right? Is this true? Like, say, are, you, are you sure you're reading this passage right? And, and I, yeah. And in fact, let me take you to, to a place where Jesus says this himself. In, in Jesus's most famous sermon ever, Jesus says something very, very similar. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through uh, 23, it says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? and, And do not many do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus says that there's a category of people who think they believe but don't have genuine faith that brings them into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this should be alarming to us This should cause us to honestly examine our own heart, our faith, our life, our belief, and ask, is the faith in my life legit? Am I exercising true belief or do I I have some sort of counterfeit? Is my belief in Jesus something that Jesus believes? Or when Jesus looks at my faith, my belief, is he skeptical of it? Now, as we ask these questions, we, we, we need to start to, to make distinctions between true belief and false belief. And, and there's two things that we can pull from this passage, if we just limit ourselves to this passage right here, that help us see the difference between true and false belief. First, the first thing that we need to notice, the difference between false and true belief, is that false belief is temperamental. False belief is a bit finicky. Now th- th- we can draw this out here because when Jesus is speaking of these people who believed, who saw these signs and believed in His name, uh, there- there's a reason why there's reference to the signs that then produced belief. Um, in-, in drawing this this to our attention and showing that these are people who not just saw signs and believed, but they needed signs in order to believe. This word here, when they saw, um, is an active, uh, present tense uh, part of, participle of the word. So it means that they, there's this ongoing need to see the miracles being done. In other words, in order for them to have belief, they need to keep seeing the signs, their belief was dependent on Jesus keeping on cranking out these miracles. It wasn't just enough to see one and then believe, but they just needed to see more and more and more. And this is, this is a, a theme that we'll see continually um, from the Jews specifically throughout John's gospel, that they just wanna see more and more and more of Jesus's signs in order that they believe. But what happens with this, if their belief is dependent upon, upon signs, uh, if the signs stop, so then does their faith. And so you see this faith that is dependent upon the reoccurring expressions of Jesus' power. Now, Jesus' signs, here's a Father's Day illustration for you. Jesus' signs are meant to be like lighter fluid. All right, Dad? You get, your, uh, you get your Weber charcoal grill out today. In fact, if Eric Tates were here today, he'd be proud that I'm endorsing these charcoal grills um, you get your charcoal grill out and you're gonna light that bad boy up. And the first thing you do is you douse the, char- the, the charcoals with this lighter fluid. It gives it sort of a, a burst of, of flame and eventually that flame takes into the coals. Now, Jesus's signs are to be like lighter fluid that ignites, it sparks the belief. And then as that fire gets going, the coals, not the lighter fluid, sustains the fire. The, the, the lighter fluid evaporates, it burns off, but the fire of belief keeps on going. Now, what these people demonstrated was a faith that constantly needed to be doused in lighter fluid. It just, you know, and if dad's out there, listen, if dad's out there and you see him for 40 minutes just spraying lighter fluid, goes through a whole bottle of lighter fluid, getting this grill going, mom, it's time to turn on the oven, all right? Take that away from dad, call for a pizza, do something, all right? A flame, of a faith that is constantly, constantly in need of being doused in lighter fluid is not true faith. False faith flares up. It, it, it goes for a moment and then burns out quickly. And because of that, false faith is constantly in flux. True faith, on the other hand, is steady. True faith is firm. True, true faith lasts even when the signs go away. And the reason why true faith is steady and firm is because the object of our faith is not the signs, but the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because the object of our faith, Jesus, is always secure. Hebrews 16.9 tells it like this. Actually, I think it's six nine actually. It says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, right? So this idea, this anchor, this something, something that's, that's fixed, that's stationary, that's not getting tossed around with the waves. We have a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, this reference to the curtain is the veil in the Holy of Holies, when Jesus was crucified, the veil tore, but, but to use this as an illustration to the Jews that, that our hope is in the holy of the holies, or in other words, our hope is in Jesus Christ, who, as we saw last week, was the true temple. True faith is strong and secure and fixed because the object of our faith is purely Jesus Now, the second difference between true and false belief has to do with motive. What are you trying to get from Jesus when you believe in him? What what exactly, when you go to the heart of hearts, you boil it down, what exactly are you after in believing in Jesus? Now the whole reason why we can draw this idea of motive is because verses 24 and 25 talks about Jesus omniscience, the fact that Jesus. Look at this. It says, uh, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, uh, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, see, here, here, here's a, a play on words here. John is trying to bear witness about Jesus, but Jesus doesn't need anybody to bear witness uh, to him about man, because Jesus already knows what is in man. Jesus knows all things, even your motives. He knows your heart. Proverbs Twenty one two tells us every way of a man is right in his own own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. First Samuel sixteen seven, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. First Chronicles twenty eight nine, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Jesus knows the heart of man because Jesus is God. And because Jesus could see their motive, Jesus could see to their heart what they were really after, this is the reason why Jesus didn't believe these people's belief. He saw that they had ulterior motives. Now, as John's gospel progresses, these ulterior motives become clearer and clearer to us. That the Jews that Jesus interacted with, the ones who would kind of come and then fall away, in fact, those who would listen to Jesus preach on the mountainside, right, the thousands and thousands of people, and then eventually they would all fall away down to where you get to Acts chapter one, and you only have 120 disciples that are left with Jesus after his crucifixion and his resurrection. These people who fell away had ulterior motives. They are trying to use Jesus as a means to their own end. They're trying to leverage Jesus' power to achieve their mission. And for the Jews at this time, it was Israel's political freedom. They had been oppressed by Roman rulers. They'd been subjected to unfair treatment. And what they were looking for from the Messiah, from God, from from Jesus, they saw his power, his ability, his demonstration through miracles that he might actually be able to do something about this predicament, that he might be able to lead us into freedom. And so they want to use Jesus's power to achieve their own goals. Now, the same thing happens a lot today where you have people who are treating Jesus as a blessing vending machine that that you put in. The idea is you put in a a little bit of faith, put a, a quarter's worth of faith, and you'll get something back, health, wealth, prosperity, success, and, and uh, prosperity gospel preachers, you, you hear this stuff all the time, they, 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 they play on this. They say, the next great thing is on the horizon for you. It's right around the corner. All you gotta do is believe in Jesus and believe in yourself. Right? This idea of put in to get out. And what this reveals is you're coming to Jesus not to get Jesus himself, but to get something else from him. The motive of true belief, the desire of true belief, the thing that true belief wants more than anything in the world is God Himself. True belief, at its core, desires to be in relationship with God. Not all the cool things that God can give you. And God does give cool things. God blesses us tremendously. Every good thing comes from God and we are to praise God when he blesses us with these things. But if you're coming to God for the blessings instead of God himself, that is not genuine faith. True faith wants God himself. Now all the blessings and stuff, it's nice, it's cool, I mean, even heaven itself, heaven is a great place, but if God's not there and you are okay with that, then that's not true belief. Because it's nothing, if you gain the whole world, if you get everything you want and you lose your soul, it's of no gain for you to have every blessing but not have relationship with God. Now, Moses demonstrates this reality in, in uh, Exodus 33. Um, God says to Moses, they, the, the Israelites had been sinful and, and the relationship between God and Israel had been fractured. And, and God sort of caves to Moses and says, listen, um, if you guys really want this promised land, I'm willing to give it to you. The, the land flowing with milk and honey, all the things that you want, wealth, success, um, this, this prosperous land, I'm willing to let you have it, but I'm not gonna go with you. You can have all the stuff, but you don't get relationship with me. You don't get me in your midst. And Moses, in, in probably one of his most genius moments, says to God, if you don't go with us, we don't wanna go. What's the point of having the promised land if our God who delivers is not there with us? And in this, you see an expression of true belief, this true motive. Of faith to be with God. Nothing else matters. What we want is God himself to be in his presence. Now, if the motive for your belief is to get something other than Jesus, you are breaking the third commandment. If you're trying to get something out of Jesus, you are taking the Lord's name in vain. And to do something like that is deceitful. It's, it's an attempt to gain something, uh, to get something through dishonest gain by, by lip service, by, okay, yeah, I, I, I say this to get that thing. And what happens is you are hijacking Jesus to serve your own goals. Your, your ulterior motives in coming to Jesus are being revealed. And, and this is... Shameful. This is embarrassing to to have our heart sort of exposed like this, to have the ugliness and the wickedness of your heart revealed for what it is that you would use Jesus to get something else. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, this shouldn't be um, all too shocking. Um, In fact, every every week that we come together, we we do, as a church, confess the vileness of our hearts, that that our our hearts are wicked. And this is something that Jeremiah 17, uh, verses nine and 10 testifies about. It says this about your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who, Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his hands. Jeremiah 17 says something about your heart that can be hard to swallow. That your heart is jacked up. And Jesus knows it. This is is one of the scary things. Um, Jesus knows your heart better than you know your heart. Uh, you might be able to fool your friends or your spouse. You can even fool yourself. But Jesus can see through the veneer and see right down to the core of your heart. And what scripture testifies to is that from birth, our hearts are bent toward evil. From birth, we desire things that God Is repulsed by. In fact, Proverbs five. This is this is one of the reasons why um, the book of Proverbs is written. It it was written by Solomon um, to his son to help instruct him uh, in the way of righteousness, to avoid the way of folly, to avoid the way of unbelief. And he cautions his son, in Proverbs chapter five, verses 21 through 23, of the wickedness of the heart, of the tendency to drift into uh, desiring things, our own way of doing things, our own way instead of trusting God. He says, "For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord." And God ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray this is, this is the default position of every human heart and in this unregenerate state our hearts are like a broken compass that, are, that can only lead you toward brokenness this is why it is a terrible idea for you to follow your heart where is it going to lead you toward your own destruction. If you knew your heart the way Jesus knew your heart, you would have no confidence in yourself at all. Now, some people might hear this and say, whoa, come on, my heart's not that bad. Like I, and yeah, I sure I, I make foolish decisions here and there, and every once in a while, there's things that that you know I feel this gravitational pull and that I know is not good for me, but I'm not totally like that. You, you might say, Sam, you don't you don't know my heart. That's true. I, I, I might not know your heart, but God does, and God gives us His Word. And Hebrews chapter four verse twelve says that. Um, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This means that God's word works in a way that reveals what our true motives are. God's word helps uncover our hearts. And when we see our hearts as illuminated by the word of God, we see that it's absolute folly to trust in it. Now, this idea to stop trusting in your heart, to stop relying on your own intuition, your own gut, can be a very um, scary concept. Because what you're thinking is that if I were to stop relying on my heart, if I were to, like if my heart is really the compass that points to true north, if that's my thought, and I stop listening to my heart, it's like gravity vanishes in my life. It's like to to not trust my heart then creates all kinds of instability. It, it, It takes away what I have found to be reliable in my life. But here's where the paradox is. If you are trusting in yourself, if you're relying upon your heart, the only thing that it will create in your life is insecurity. Because if the heart is deceitful, if it's unsteady, it will create unsteady paths for you. And so it's only when you learn to doubt yourself, to be skeptical of your own heart, and instead of trusting yourself, you transfer your trust onto Jesus in his entirety, it's only then you will find security. In fact, Jesus is the only place where you can find the stability that you are looking for in your life. Every other world religion, uh, even the secular humanistic culture, panders toward the religion of self-trust, either by explicitly saying, just follow your heart, or... In many other cases, it, it says, Here, here's some principles for you to build your life on. Now go and do that, right? Just, just put your head down, go do these things, and, and the process will work out, right? You, by your, your determination, it'll work itself out. Well, you'll, you'll get to where you wanna go. But Christianity is entirely different. In Christianity, there, there is no place for self-trust, It says, because you cannot apply these principles to live wisely, because you cannot do things in your own strength, because your heart really is unreliable and creates sinking sand for your life. Because you can't, Jesus did. See, this is what Christianity says. You can't do it, so Jesus did it for you. That Jesus took salvation out of your hands and what you do now is you rely on him in his entirety. It's not this you know, 80-20, like I trust in Jesus 80% and then I bring 20% to the table. And then that's how Christianity works. You're not even 99 to one. Christianity is the full weight of my trust placed upon Jesus. And it's not until you abandon self-trust And you put the full weight of your trust on Jesus, that you can see yourself rightly. Now, this is where Christian freedom comes from. When you have found security in Christ, when you see that your heart is, in fact, deceitful and wicked and sick, you can see yourself rightly and you'll be totally honest about yourself. That you have the freedom to confess sin. Say, yeah, my heart, I desire this, but my heart wants me to go bow to the left. Believing in Jesus for salvation gives you freedom to confess your sins. Knowing that Jesus has paid the full price for your guilt, and for your shame, that he has justified you before the Father. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 4 when he says, And to the one who does not work, so the one who does not rely on self for salvation, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that is Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness, so it's the one who, who believes, who puts the full weight of trust on Jesus, who is counted righteous. And so in this, both faith and God's righteousness is a gift of grace that we receive, not achieve. And in this re- reception, our hearts move toward trust. Trust. as we've been justified by faith in Christ, as our sin is dealt with, as we're moved from genuine faith, from move from unbelief to true faith, Jesus gives us a new heart. Jesus gives us a new heart with new desires The, the spirit of God comes into the heart of every believer and straightens things out. So then our chief desire becomes Jesus. And in this, we become people who can actually live into the charge that Paul lays out at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, here you see this connection between truly coming to Jesus, having a faith that is fixed on him, that's not, that's not uh, ebbing and flowing or flickering and fading, but a steadfast, immovable faith. But this faith is not about your own mission, but Christ's mission. He says to abound in the work of the Lord. Through the gospel, as we receive faith to believe in Jesus' name, we also become people (coughs) who abandon our small goals and are entrusted with Jesus' mission. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, true faith is centered on Christ. It is secure in Christ. True faith moves us to the work that Christ has called us to do, to proclaim the good news of the gospel wherever God has placed you, to give yourself to the work of the Lord, not your small goals, but the goal of God, that the whole world would be covered by his glory as the waters cover the sea. My prayer today, I can't see, I can't x-ray your heart the way Jesus can. I can't know exactly what kind of belief you're operating from. If it's it's a true belief or a false belief, maybe, maybe you came in this morning, no belief. But my prayer today is that the Lord Jesus Christ would either reveal himself to you for the first time and move you from unbelief to true belief. Or for those of you who, who are aware of who Jesus is and have been operating from this false belief that you, you've been like the people who came to him at the end of Matthew chapter two that thought they believed but didn't have true belief that the Lord Jesus would graciously move you away from self-reliance to full and complete reliance on the person and work of Jesus Christ that you would find in Christ the salvation you're looking for, that in Christ you would find the joy you were made to experience all the days of your life, that in Christ you would find the desires of your heart met. And as you receive this joy, this contentment, that you would have this burning desire to help other people know this Christ the way you know him. That you, as one who has been entrusted with the good news of the gospel, would go. That you would proclaim what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus has done so that others would believe. May our Lord Jesus Christ graciously increase our faith. May he fortify our faith that we would truly believe in him and that our belief would be marked by the actions that honor our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have done everything that's needed, that we would inherit eternal life, that it's you who graciously gives us the gift of faith. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would pour yourself out this day. We're told in in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing. And so this morning, I pray that in the hearing of the proclamation of the gospel, people would come to faith today. That those who who are unbelieving would become true believers. Those who have been operating from false belief would now have true belief in Christ. That they would displace the belief in themselves, this reliance upon their own heart, and instead rely totally upon Jesus. To to put themselves, to subject themselves to the Lordship of Christ, to be uh, commanded by his word, and in doing so, find life to the fullest. We ask that you would do this, O Lord, for your glory and for the joy of your people. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray this day. Amen.